0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, ancient cartographers discover that the big waterfall at the end of the world plunges into a sea of upturned swords. Ouch! Collapsible planets and dragons breathing fire plus we continue the complete audiobook serialization of uncompromising honor by david weber all right now welcome to the bain free radio hour podcast it's an honor to have you along i'm bain senior editor tony daniel we have a roundtable discussion this time with editors and authors of the great new ring of fire alternate history anthology Grantville Gazette 9. We are joined by Eric Flint, Walt Boyes, Joy Ward, Griffin Barber, and Jackie Britton Lopatin, so stay tuned for that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, wanna call your attention to our very cool Bain Books Teachers Guides by offering an ebook sale this month. Bain Teacher Guides are developed by teachers and education experts for use by homeschoolers and teachers in the classroom. All Bain Teacher Guides provide a background of the novel, a complete and comprehensive summation of the story, a vocabulary list, individual chapter summaries, focus questions, and initiating activities, and uh, reading comprehension quizzes thought provoking discussion questions and lots more these are amazing resources in other words for amazing books and they are downloadable free at bain.com forward slash study guides and now for july we offer one dollar off all the bain ebooks that have a teacher guide that goes along with them these include great books like 1632 by eric flint monster hunter international by larry Correa. A Beautiful Friendship by David Weber and some great Heinleins such as The Star Beast, Farmer in the Sky, and The Rolling Stones. Stock up for education, for entertainment, or both, and check out the Bain Teacher Guides. They're a wonderful resource for everyone. And you can find the complete list of teacher guides and discount ebooks at bain.com. Hey, the July mass market paperbacks are blasting across the sky for your reading enjoyment this month, out now as Destroyer of Worlds by Larry Correa. Ashok Vidal, once a remorseless and highly effective protector of the law, is now the reluctant military commander of a throng of rebels and misfits and turncoat to a treacherous empire bent on the mass murder of an entire cast of people. If it's war the capital wants, it's war they will have with Ashok Vidal, for he has faced down gods and demons before. And overcome them also out in july and mass market paperback is at the end of the world by charles e Gaddon. six teenagers bound on a senior summer cruise ranging from suburban geeks to street smart pariahs and a british captain who rarely smiles what could go wrong well zombies could go wrong just days after they leave a plague starts spreading like wildfire turning its survivors into cannibalistic monsters Now the small ship they sail on becomes their one hope for survival. Also out in July is The Collapsium by Will McCarthy. When a ruthless saboteur attacks a device capable of probing the farthest reaches of space time, two rival scientists must combine their prodigious intellects to prevent the destruction of the entire solar system and every living thing within it. The collapsium by Will McCarthy. At the End of the World by Charles E. Gannon, Destroyer of Worlds by Larry Correa are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part roundtable discussion of Grantville Gazette 9. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Eric Flint, Walt Boyes, Joy Ward, Griffin Barber, and Jackie Britton Lopatin—or is it Lopatin?
2: Lop- Lopatin.
1: Lopatin. To Lopatin. the podcast. Hello, folks.
2: How
3: you Hi. doing?
1: Hi. Um, let me talk a little bit about both of you. Although I might need uh, Jackie to uh, to fill me in on her background, or someone else to. Uh, Eric Flint, modern master of alternate history fiction, three million books in print, is the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, uh, starting with 1632, which came out in 2000. And, it has, uh, and this is where it's resulted, 21 years later. Um, he's written uh, six popular novels with David Drake, the Belisarius um, novels, and with David Weber, he's written those Crown of Slave novels that are set in the Honorverse. and there's a new one in process right now that's gonna come out in the fall. It's gonna be great. Um, And what else we got? Uh, Eric was for many years a labor union activist and he lives outside in the huffing puffing East Chicago area where all the the steel mills are or used to be. Um, Walt, what's that still
4: there? They're still here. Yeah, hold on a second.
3: i've got a spam uh, right. sorry well, about that
1: walt Boyes is, is the editor of the industrial automation insider magazine editor of the grantville gazette um which is uh the the community uh electronic um, magazine of i guess you would call it of of the 1632.org uh i don't know what the organization's called uh Everybody that has to do with Eric's wonderful uh, Ring of Fire series. Um,
4: and community, it's the best term, probably.
1: Yeah.
5: Eric's minions. Let's just go. Eric's again.
1: minions, and uh, along with Joy Ward, uh,
3: My video isn't on.
1: Yeah.
4: Some of them are very definitely not minions.
1: You're not moving. Some. Of them. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Joy Ward, author of a novel, um, she has several stories in print and magazines and anthologies and she's the uh, co-editor of the Grantville Gazette. Um, she's written a, a, for many publications, including Mother Jones on the issues, commerce and government review. Griff Barber, he spent his youth in four different countries, learned three language, burning all his bridges in the process, finally ending up in Northern California with a day job as a police officer in a major metropolitan department. Um, where he lives with his lovely wife and crazy smart daughter, and some animals. He is the author with Eric Flint of uh 1636 Mission to the Muggles, or Mughals, and um 1637 The Peacock Throne, which are uh India, India area before it was India, uh, based um 1632 alternate history novels. There's Walt. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Excellent. There go. Excellent. So
3: That'll teach me to upgrade Zoom just before a meeting.
1: <laughs> well, out now at was Booksellers. Yeah.
3: What out was that, now at...
1: Go ahead. Let me show you the book. Out now at Booksellers Everywhere. Here's the 3D version of Grantville oh, Gaza. Right? Look night? at that. It's a book. <laughs> yes, it's a book. Uh you can see from all sides. Um or else I've done an incredibly good uh, 3D mock-up, um, which I have not. This is, this is the book. It's right
5: um, on special effects study.
1: That's right. We just—it's cheaper just to print the books.
3: So,
1: <laughs> so they are—they're uh, out uh, at, when this broadcast. They're not quite out as we speak, uh, but they will be out um, as soon as that this podcast is out as well so um maybe you know eric you wrote an introduction to this Uh, maybe you or, or walter joy can bring us up to speed on on what this is um and what this project the grantville gazette project has has wrought
4: well the the magazine started uh 2003 as i remember what happened was that um the third book we did in the 1632 series was the anthology ring of fire and this was very unusual because normally with a series they don't produce an anthology that quickly they wait till half a dozen novels are out and then if there's enough popularity then they'll they'll produce a uh, a uh, anthology and when they do the uh stories are always always done on commission. In other words, they're not accepting unsolicited manuscripts. The uh, editor asked specific authors to write stories for it. But we had had a lot of fan participation in building for 1632 and it continued on after the book came out. So I raised with Jim doing an anthology and we would, set aside half the book for established authors like David Weber or Mercedes Lackey. Um, but the other half we would leave open for fans who wanted to submit stories and we would, we would pick them. And uh, over a hundred people submitted stories. And I wound up selecting nine of them and they appeared in that anthology. And it was very successful. That anthology has sold uh, that over a uh, hundred thousand dollars in royalties and anybody who knows anything about that's phenomenal phenomenal uh, royalties for any short story anthology um and people kept writing i mean there's just a lot of fan fiction being produced and so i raised with jim he said hey would you like to try the experiment of producing an electronic magazine where we would publish the best of these stories And Jim thought it was an interesting idea, but he said he just didn't want to deal with the headache and hassle of running a magazine. So he said, But if you want, I'll lend you the money uh, enough to set it up. And then, you know, you just pay me back. Um, And that's how he did it. Um, And actually, I was able to pay him back quite quickly. Um, So. The magazine, therefore, had been mine from the very beginning. And the first four issues of it, we did um, just kind of on know first nine issues. There was no regular publication schedule. And we did pay people for it, but it was semi-pro rates. It was kind of an occasional kind of a hobbyist thing. But uh, eventually, we decided, now, let's take this thing seriously. And so beginning in May of 2007, we began producing it on a professional basis. It has a regular publication schedule, comes out every two months. The rates paid to the authors uh, uh, fit the Science Fiction Writers Association criteria for professional rates. You know, it's a pro magazine. And uh, I asked Paula Goodlett to be the editor of it, which she was for a number of years. Um, and then she was later replaced by Walt. So the magazine, beginning with, I believe it was the 10th issue in May of 2007 has been published professionally and we are now almost, where are we at? Walt, well, I think we're at issue 90. We just
3: put 96 to bed.
4: Right. Hmm. So we're getting close to a hundred issues. And, and what I then did, the discuss with jim and, and jim said well let's try putting one of these issues in a magazine out as a book see what happens so we did uh, the first one is done as a paperback and it sold extremely well and so we then did the next three the same way we just take the existing issue of the magazine and just turn it into a book um, and we did that with volumes one, two, three, and four of, of the Granville Gazette anthologies, which are published by Bain. Um, but at that point, we could no longer do that because the magazine was just out racing, you know, any yeah, possibility yeah. Of, of, of any publisher keeping up with it. So since starting with volume five, we have, uh, done each one of these volumes. They're best of. Basically, we go through about fifteen issues of a magazine um, and select what we think are the best stories out of it, and and then Bane Books publishes it as an anthology.
1: About how many? Um, actually, uh, Walt and Joy, why don't you? What What goes into making a magazine issue, and how do you do that? And about how many stories or or articles? I think you have some nonfiction in there as well.
3: Yeah, the um, the Gazette is broken up into several different departments like most magazines are the fiction department is for fiction that is in the 1632 series, we have a time spike department for fiction from. uh, Eric's other universe, the time spike universe um and we have a really good time spike story in this one in the current one um. It's called uh, The First Cavalry of the Cretaceous. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, then we uh, have a nonfiction department. Um, there are a couple of, pl- of places for columns. Um, Christine Catherine Rush and I write columns. Uh, and then we have another department which we call the Universe Annex. When Eric started Bain's Universe Magazine, um, we always left it open for um, people who wanted uh, to write, but who had no writing credentials. We would look at, um, and uh, Rick Boatwright and a couple of other very savvy people uh, put together uh, an electronic slush pile that would enable us to go through slush very, very quickly with just a short, a few number of people, and when Bain's Universe folded, because it was about two years ahead of the Kindle. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
3: um, if we'd if we'd been able to hold on for another two years, it would have been the first science fiction magazine on Kindle, uh, but uh, it didn't. It was a it was a great try. Um, The problem is that the authors would not go away. They would just, they refused to go away and they kept sending us stories and they were good publishable quality stories. So we kept the crit group um, that we had set up um, for uh, the universe uh, writers to write and post slush in. And we just let them keep doing that. And after a while, Eric and I looked at it and said, you know, these are good enough that we ought to just start publishing one or two an issue. And and so we have. We've even attracted some uh, serious pros um, like Edward M. Lerner, uh, who has a story uh, in this issue And we get some interesting new writers as well. These do not have to be stories about the 1632 universe. They can be about anything. And we've gotten some wonderful stories.
1: Uh, So um, it's quite a, it's a, it's it's an all purpose science fiction uh, magazine.
3: For all intents and purposes it is, with the exception that we have uh, a very large 1632
1: bent. Yes one would imagine. So how is this related to the 1632.org community? How does it fit in?
3: Well, 1632.org, um, is the site of all the resources, news, um, authors, guides, uh, don't do this. We have tarred feathered and nailed this dead horse. Don't do it. Um, and all kinds of things like that. We have a copy of uh, what we call uh, the grid, which is all of the people who came back in time with Grantville. And we have um, a number of other very useful things. The story search engine enables authors uh, to type in a word string and get hits from every, uh, everything that's ever been written whether it's been published by Bain or it's been published by the Grantville Gazette or it's been published by Ring of Fire Press, it shows up and we have a volunteer who keeps that up. Um, um, it's almost always really current. Um, and and so we've done uh, some interesting things with the idea of being a magazine with the idea of being books. Um, and. Uh, uh, it helps. It, it it actually helps that we have spies. Um, uh, Jackie happens to live in Mannington, West Virginia, which is the model
0: no, really. uh,
3: of, wow. uh, uh, for Grantville. And if we need to know how far is this building from the corner, she walks over and looks.
2: It's well, I haven't. And, been- I haven't been called on to do that very often but i've been really pleased that bjorn has come and visited me a couple of times it's i live on a very pleasant street in a pleasant town i have a wonderful neighbor neighbors and i'm enjoying living in mannington and which i explained to people that that uh eric used to live in morgantown and there was a small town outside of Morgantown when he was living there in the late 70s, that uh, was called Granville. And so that's where he undoubtedly came up with the name Grantville. And there's also a Grantsville elsewhere in West Virginia. And then, but, but Granville, by the turn of the century had turned into a big box store uh, haven. And so he had to go looking for someplace else, and he drove down 250 and found Mannington, <laughs> and and so and and I was walking the streets of of Mannington on Google Earth uh, back in around 2014-2015, and I really liked what I saw. <laughs> so so anyway, it's it, it, I'll, it's I'll probably get out of water, better
3: right? now in the 21st century than it is. In the 17th century, but who knows? Well, yeah. so
4: well the thing about the thing about living in West Virginia is there are a lot of great things about it as long as you've got an income. The problem mm-hmm. I remember when I when I moved to West Virginia, I always wondered why would anybody in their right mind work in a coal mine, and I discovered why real quick. And uh, within two months, I was trying to get a job in a coal mine because it was not the only job that paid well. You know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife at the time, not Lucille, my first wife, she was the uh, assistant, uh, uh, the executive assistant to the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at West Virginia University, is right there in Morgantown, and got paid minimum wage. I mean, that's kind of you know, I mean, that's what you're dealing with. Um, and that's but. If you can deal with the financial side of it, uh, there are a lot of really nice things about West Virginia. Really, our people are nice. I always liked them a lot. Um,
1: Yeah. Well, having a job is often a good, good way to go.
4: (laughs) 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 Wherever you may live. I worked all kinds of jobs when I was there. I worked machine shops. I wound up working in shape up in glass factories, driving a cab at night. I mean, you know, you just pretty much do whatever you can scrape up in order to make a living it's not easy it really
1: isn't yeah yeah well maybe they shouldn't have broken off from virginia in the civil war maybe they'd be better off if they not hardly did with the uh, confederacy
3: <laughs> but on the there other are, hand on the, I air, like are,
1: virginia, on are, on the other air.
3: hand tony okay. we would not have had the hatfields and mccoys that's true because um, one of them no we,
4: we probably would have um um the thing you got to understand about Appalachia is there are plenty of parts of it. I mean, people think of Virginia, they think of Northern Virginia, you know, the high scale. Yeah. You go down to Southwest Virginia, it's a whole other ballgame. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, that's what I think about when I think about Virginia. I don't even believe that the Northern Virginia exists um, as part of this state. Anyway, as a son of Appalachia, I will defend it to <laughs> i'm I'm coming to you from east tennessee so it can be poor and stupid uh as well and you know it's 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 great that those people in georgia finally learned how to read um they they can catch up with us in alabama well Um, you know
2: they're gonna
3: have to learn how to read now that the justice department has decided uh to intervene in the uh, voting in, in the voting rights case
1: Let's talk about the book. Um, I was going
2: to say, let's stay out of of politics.
1: So, there is this book has a definite tiger theme. Um, I have noticed it. um, What the heck is that about? First of all, there's this Thomas Kidd cover, which you may notice is um, this way. Yes, there um, is is the philosopher Thomas Hobbes in a tiger outfit, um, which I believe is a Hobbes outfit. But, so maybe we could start out with talk about Eric's story, which is um, I was going to end on it, though. Maybe we should end on that. Let's talk about Griff's story. Um, Hunter, my huntress. Now, this is this this is away from uh, Magdeburg and and Mid- so what happens in the in, in the series is for those that don't know the town uh, of Grantville, West Virginia is thrown back in time into the middle of Germany in the 1600s. And, uh, during all of that tumult in, in Europe at the time, but now that's 1632. Now we're, we're a good ways ahead. Uh, I believe probably Griff's story take what 1636 or seven would yep. be yeah, 36. Yeah. And, so- um, it's in india and uh, or it's it's concerning uh the 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 characters that are uh become some of the main characters of um 1636 uh mission of the Mughals and 1637 the peacock throne right dar yep. and uh dara and what's the woman's name she's dahanara the- his the sister friend. his elder sister but tell, us a, tell us about this and tell us what tigers have to do with it <laughs> so uh
6: the uh, originally i this is only the second professional sale i'd made i believe uh and uh now this is originally story yeah
1: before uh, you wrote the books you wrote this story
6: yeah this is oh. this was actually kind of a proof of concept yeah, thing uh yeah this is a proof of concept thing wow. what basically had happened was christopher weber had an excellent story with uh that occurs in grantville uh or magdeburg with a uh a, an Afghan soldier, uh, a fortune kind of thing, and a diplomat sent from the Mughals to, uh, to Europe. Um, and uh, Christopher and I were initially going uh, going to try and write a novel with Eric uh, concerning India. And uh, uh, he had provided that character, Salim, and uh, he kind of dropped out of, uh, of it. And uh, I was writing the uh, the India side, and he was going to write the seafaring side as they as they travel from uh, Europe to uh, India, um, and so these stories were going to be braided together uh, and made into a novel. And what they ended up being was, uh, I, I wrote a, uh, I wrote the first one, uh, Hunter, my huntress, and uh, the tiger has to do with it in that uh, one of their. She is Nur Jahan, uh, who's who turned out to be one of Eric's favorite uh, villainesses uh, in the uh, cycle that we're doing right now.
4: Yeah,
1: um, she's, she's super smart and sneaky.
6: Yeah, and so she is uh, having a conversation with Jahanara about uh, trying to kind of illuminate for Jahanara that there's, there's different ways of doing things And I've seen it all and that kind of thing. And she's relating a story of a tiger hunt that she went on and with her husband uh, and uh, the emperor of the Mughal empire and how she, uh, he uh, said, well, if you're so good at it, shoot him and she actually killed. and And I know that in the modern context, this is a horrible, horrible thing. But at the time, they were seen as a real threat to uh, farmers, livestock, everything. Uh, and uh, but she killed. In the actual historical record, says that she killed four in one sitting. Four Bengal tigers hunted in one one uh, shoot. And I was like, nobody will believe that, <laughs> you know, with a single shot, uh, single shot arquebus, basically. So I kind of toned it down just a little bit. Just went for three. And while she's relating this story to the, her young, uh, she's her niece, her grandniece and, yeah, her grandniece and her step-granddaughter, because tangled webs are not just for West Virginia hillbillies, but also for uh, Indian royal families. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, uh, that was kind of the origin of that story was uh, trying to prove my chops to Eric uh, and uh, uh, put that story together took about a year uh, to do and uh, because a lot of research involved in in trying to figure out what was going on in Mughal India at the time Uh, but it was certainly not wasted because uh, I did that story and I think two more or three more that were uh, published by the Gazette um, after that with the same characters and uh, with Christopher dropping out, I just uh, I approached Eric and was talking to him. It was like you know, hey, I'll I'll do this, and I'm sure there's some uh, behind the scenes talking from uh, both from Walt and and Chuck Gannon and uh, um, Paula Goodlett about you know what I was doing to kind of encourage Eric to take a look and, and uh, see him in a positive light. I I didn't actually know that they were going to be in the and Grandpa Gazette nine until recently, I think Walt told me, but I've had some busy stuff going on recently. Um, so I've been losing track of things.
1: Well, tell us <laughs> but, uh, a little bit about uh, the, the characters of Dara and John Ara and and a little bit more about Noor as well, just to, uh, to because they, they're, sort of key elements in this sort of web work of of, of, um, of intermarried families that are also killing each other and fighting for power and uh, all yeah it's a fascinating era
6: so the uh, Mughals uh, don't have primogeniture so it's basically the Empire is divided amongst the the, the sons technically but usually it's uh, they fight for it and one of them wins and the others, in the previous generation, Shah Jahan is, their, uh, is Darashiko, Aurangzeb, and Jahanara's father. Um, and Nur Jahan is Shah Jahan's mother in law. Um, no, no, it's, no. His
4: stepmother.
6: His stepmother, thank you. It's again, <laughs>
4: no,
6: it's, <laughs> it's a bush, not a tree.
4: <laughs> so, uh, well, she, and Noor was, was Emperor Jahangir's twentieth and last wife. Yes, and was far and away the most influential and powerful. She was uh, an incredible figure in Indian history. She's immensely powerful, even a coinage issued in her own name. Um, one of the reasons I want to keep her around is first of all, I think she's a great character. But the other thing I like about her, she's sixty years old, um, and. <clears throat> Books aren't as bad as movies, but they tend to have the same dynamic of, you know, female characters tend to be, you know, forty or under, um, and I just like having this sixty-year-old, hard-bitten, tough-as-nails woman uh, who's been a mover and shaker in, in what was one of the two or three most powerful empires at the time, and did it all from the confines of the harem um you know because she was under severe restrictions um but that didn't stop her from wielding a huge amount of power um there was one empress of the ottoman empire that was sort of like her i can't remember her name but she did the same kind of thing she basically rock ran the empire for,
3: Huh? rock Roxelana. yeah so yeah uh, so anyway nerd. that's partly
4: what i like about north
6: and, you know, it, it was fun to write her, uh, you know, I, I, I have her having hot flashes while she's uh, working her way through uh, uh, her, you know, little uh, coterie of you know, spies and that kind of thing. So, you know, making her as, uh, as human and, and uh, uh, three-dimensional as possible, given, you know, that these, these women were, you know, if, if otherwise it would be a, a terrible slog. If you were to you know, just talk about the harem and, and how you know, oppressive it was to women, which it was, but mm-hmm. you know, it, they were, you know, these, these people were people who had well-rounded personalities and were able to, to effect massive change and massively uh, benefit their people. Uh, Jahanara built uh, something on the order of 76 caravanserai, uh, basically caravan stops, hostels along the caravan routes that uh, her father had set up. Um, so, you know, and these were free. They were held at her expense uh, to the people. Uh, so trade flourished under her. She was also a big trader. She uh, donated enormous amounts of money to, uh, uh, to Mecca uh, and Medina for the upkeep of uh, the Qubba. um Just really uh, impressive kind of resume. And then she was a huge poet um, this is all just Jahanar. Uh, Nur Jahan was equally uh, uh, powerful and smart, and, and she uh, developed, a, they called it water silk, uh, that was worn by the, the harem and the rich people. She uh, also developed a perfume, Atar of Roses, that uh, was special and new. Um, just uh, amazingly kind of round, round, well-rounded people, extremely well-educated, spoke three, five, three to five languages as a matter of course throughout the day. Um, and you know, just really kind of neat, impressive stuff.
1: Yeah. And um, also a and very then, good shot off the back of a horse. Yes. Well, uh, we
4: actually one of the things one of the things that we tried to do, and I think successfully is 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 portray to people the reality of, of what an imperial harem is, because there's a lot of just stereotypes people have. Um, you know, it's just kind of well, really good-looking, semi-naked women, and it, man, there was some of that, especially given that climate. But we start the second novel, um, uh, *Peacock's Throne*, with a polo game uh, between different women of the, of the harem. And when I say polo, I mean you know the kind where you're on horseback, smacking a mallet. And the thing about that, people tend to associate English aristocracy. Yeah, well it's a very rough dangerous sport um as is anything involving being up on a horse um and you know they still do that all the time and hunt yeah. and hunt tigers you know it's like it's not really quite what people think anyway yeah those books yeah, so
6: the, yeah they are the the uh, so the short story in any case is uh is kind of the introduction of the, here is all the stuff that's going on. Uh, and Jahanara is trying to hide, conceal the fact that she has uh, received via Celine, the uh, conduit who actually went to Grantville and is coming back with a bunch of documents, uh, proving uh, that Grantville is real. Uh, and, you know, because the emperors, he had sent his, his uh, envoy there basically to get rid of it. Because the guy had lost the uh, the power play against uh, against him, against Shah Jahan, he had lost the power play there, and uh, but he was too powerful to really just kind of execute. So he got rid of him. He said, "You know, why don't you go to Grant, find this this uh, fabled town that's appeared in 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 Europe, uh, and got rid of him that way." So uh, Salim has returned, and he's returned with a bunch of documents. One of which is the. Uh, A postcard of the Taj Mahal. Um, And when a spoiler alert, when Shah Jahan sees this, uh, he believes that, yeah, this must be for real, that they were from the future. And there's a lot of mysticism involved in uh, in well, even in modern day India. But there was a lot of mysticism involved in uh, even the practice of Islam at the time. So there was a, a lot of wiggle room for prophecies and those kind of things where wow, this, is, this could really be what's going on. And that's how kind of Dara gets into it is because he was much more um, multi-denominational, let's put it that way. He was very much a fan of his uh, grandfather's way of doing things, which was uh, everybody is neighbors. Everybody is, uh, we're Sulim al-Kul, I think is the name of it. I'm probably mispronouncing it horribly, but it was everyone is a, a neighbor, everyone is a friend under me. And uh, the religious differences should not matter so much as the community that is uh, the Mughal court and the Mughal Empire, So, uh, which was uh, you know, a radical concept, um, especially among uh, Muslims, given that they're not big fans of, of uh, coexisting uh, either in that era or in, uh, in the current era. And so it was a big shift that uh, his grandfather had done and Dara really bought into this. He was a big fan of it. He was in the actual historical record. He was a bit of a, uh, um, how shall we put it? He was a bit gullible. He, he, he liked his mysticism and his wizards and stuff like that. But he tried to have a spell cast on an Afghan uh, fortress that was resisting the empire, uh, thinking that that would be a successful way to, get, uh, to have them open the gates and overcome the, the fortress uh, that the Persians had taken.
3: So. Tony, I don't know if you, if you know this, but joy was the one who picked, um, the first round of all the stories. Uh, and then I looked at it and then Eric picked the one, the last group that actually made it into the book. Um, so, so
1: how do, how do you sort through that enormous amount of stuff to, uh, I mean, there's so many issues, joy
5: you um, go back to what's the real root of Ring of Fire, and some people know I have a very long uh, uh, background in psychological research as well as history, uh, and what I look, when I looked at Ring of Fire, what I realized is what Eric had written was change. This is about change. How does change affect us? How do we affect change? How, do, how, how does it mess up our lives, basically? And so when I was looking at these stories, I was looking for stories that were not the big stories, because frankly, I don't really give a hoot about the big stories. You know, What's the King doing? What's the, the Pope doing? I don't care. I learned a long time ago from Connie Willis, the great Connie Willis, when I did an interview with her for Galaxy's Edge. And what she said is during times of change, people are still doing stuff. They're still getting married, having babies, selling stuff, buying stuff. All the things of life are still going on. So when I looked at the stories, I wanted to see the small stories, as Eric calls them. The stories that are about people and about small issues. Like I said, I didn't care about the Kings. I mean, Eric and man can deal with that, I don't care. But the the things like Jackie's story, which is just a marvelous story about how does one little piece of, of trivia change everything um and those are the kinds of stories that i really value and that's what i looked for but it's really good writing mm-hmm. because we've got some marvelous writers in uh, the universe
1: yeah it's well, probably okay. a bunch of stories that you wish you could have gotten in as well
5: oh yeah there were stories but sometimes they'd say no we can't do that because there's a book coming out on that or so i'm not really at uh uh released to talk about those but uh I'm sure people will hear from those stories, too, later or later. Very We've cool. got a lot of stories to tell.
1: That was part one of a two-part discussion of Grantville Gazette 9. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic Mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Webber's uncompromising honor.
0: We're still at an early enough stage no one's come up with anything to call it yet. But basically, we'd amend both constitutions to grant reciprocal citizenship. Reciprocal citizenship? Anna repeated. In essence, any citizen of the Republic would be a citizen of the Star Empire, and any citizen of the Star Empire would be a citizen of the Republic. Where they voted and where they paid taxes would depend upon the star nation in which they currently resided. Elizabeth smiled as Honor's eyes widened. Oh, it'll be more complicated than that, I'm sure, but that's the basic platform we're after. We'll be looking at building deliberate economic ties as well. And of course, Havenite businesses and individuals will get the same junction rates as Manticorans do. As I say, I've talked about it with Benjamin a bit, too. Grayson intends to stay independent, for reasons I fully understand, but he's inclined to think the Graysons may be ready for the same kind of relationship by the time Eloise and I actually have all the bits and pieces glued into place. Um. Honor frowned in thought then glanced at Hamish. There seemed to be a certain flicker of amusement deep in his blue eyes, but he only looked back with a solemn shrug. It sounds like it ought to be workable, she said to Elizabeth then. I'd be more confident if history wasn't littered with things that ought to have worked, but with a pair like you and Eloise driving it, I don't doubt the legal framework can at least be created and put into place. Making it actually work has a lot of potential to get complicated, though, I'd think. I agree, Elizabeth said with a chuckle. On the other hand, there are some things we can already put into place to help build the relationship we'll need when the time comes. In fact, I'd plan to discuss this with you sometime in the next few months. Did you, Honor said and there was no mistaking the suspicion in her tone or her eyes this time as she sampled Elizabeth's mindglow. Well, I wasn't going to cram it at you, Elizabeth told her, but one of the most essential elements will be keeping our military establishments on the same page, especially with the alignment still out there somewhere. All trace of amusement faded from her eyes for a moment, and her nostrils flared. I know the hunt for the rest of your onion is really only just getting started, Honor. But I have to tell you, I'm not optimistic about our dragging them back into the open until they're damned well ready to come back out into the open. I'm not giving up hope, but I'm afraid that's what the odds favor, Honor agreed. Which is why we have to maintain a strong military posture, I don't see any way in hell we could maintain the fleet strength we have right now. There are megatons of totally valid domestic reasons to cut naval funding now that the League's not a threat and we've pretty much established we can kick anybody's ass. Elizabeth said bluntly, Manticore has enough of a naval tradition and enough interstellar commitments that maintaining a powerful fleet won't be that great a challenge. Maintaining one as powerful as the one we have now is likely to be impossible, though. We'll keep a couple hundred capital ships in commission. A lot of the others can go into reserve. And unlike the Sollies, we will rotate ships in and out to keep them up to date. But we're going to need a lot more cruisers and battle cruisers than STPs in our post-war fleet. And Haven's Navy will probably be under even more pressure to retrench. Partly, I'm afraid- because the Havenite Navy acquired a lot of negative associations under the legislaturalists that the Royal Navy's never had to deal with. Honor nodded again. She'd considered those points herself more than once. So what Eloise and I plan to do is find every way we can to weld the R.M.N. and R.H.N. together at the hip. Elizabeth smiled thinly. For one thing, we're shipping all the Solarian data you brought home from Ganymede to Bolthole, and we intend to establish a permanent joint R&D facility there. Honor's eyes flared in true astonishment, and Elizabeth's smile grew warmer. Apparently, Admiral Hemphill and Admiral Foraker have taken a genuine liking to one another. The Empress shook her head. Eloise tells me Tom Thysman's taken to referring to them as a Congress of Geeks. She chuckled. I think he means it as a compliment. I am pretty sure he does, Honor said. But, Lord, I don't know if the galaxy's ready to have both of them working together permanently, Elizabeth. With tree cats thrown into the mix, too, Elizabeth said with a louder chuckle. Don't forget that. Honor shook her head, and Elizabeth grinned at her. Anyway, what we're hoping is that our research establishments will cross-fertilize and we can create a commonality of weapons clear across the board. And, of course, strategic and tactical doctrine to go with it. I expect that'll require at least as much work as the hardware side. Honor nodded yet again, and Elizabeth shrugged. One thing we're planning on is to operate permanently integrated manticorin and havenite formations in areas which are clearly of vital interest to us both there'll be plenty of opportunity to cycle up-and-coming commanders through those sorts of slots. And we're also thinking about modifying our academy's curricula so that our midshipmen and their officer cadets each spend one full year in the other's academy. Honor's eyes widened with respect for that notion, but then she frowned. All that sounds wonderful, Elizabeth, and I'm pretty sure our current crop of senior officers could make it work at least at the macro level. Mike and Lester, for example, or Longley and Alice. But it's going to tend to fly apart at what I think of as the micro level, the training level, the level where logistics officers and yard dogs get to stick their oars in, or the level where people who feel their unspeakable talents were underrecognized when someone like that hack Tourville got the choice assignment and all the glory can do their best to pour sand into the gears. That's one of the things I worry about on the political side, but that's not my real forte. The military side, though? She shook her head. Tom can probably handle it from his side, at least as long as Eloise is in office, but we've got plenty of arrogant, chauvinistic manticorans who'll require a little attitude adjustment from time to time while all this is getting set up. Once it's up and running, maybe not, but in the early stages? She rolled her eyes. Then she stopped and those eyes narrowed as she tasted Elizabeth's mind glow. Oh No, she said sharply. Don't even think about it, Elizabeth. Well, I wasn't going to bring it up, the Empress said. But since you have, there's really only- I said no, and I meant no, Honor said flatly. I'm done, Elizabeth, I told you that. I know you did, Elizabeth said in a softer voice. Well, I damned well meant it, Honor said. She tucked her right arm around Catherine and reached out her left to take Hamish's hand. I've been on active duty since the day I graduated from Saginami Island, and since Basilisk, I've been on active operations without any real break, aside from the time I spent on medical leave or hauled off to Cerberus. Oh, and I'll give you the time I spent on the beach after the duel, or during the High Ridge fiasco, although I wouldn't exactly call either of those restful but that's 43 T years, Elizabeth, 43, and I have a family, and I'm going to spend time with that family. Her eyes burned, her hand tightened on Hamish's, and she realized her lips wanted to quiver. She blinked back tears and looked quickly at him, tasting his support, feeling his love, then turned back to Elizabeth. I'm sorry, Elizabeth, she said softly. I know how badly you think you need me. I can taste it. But I've given everything I've got, I'm tired. And Hamish and I went to Briarwood last week for Dr. Illescu to implant the zygote, Emily's zygote. The day I told her about Beowulf, the day she died, that was the day it was fertilized. She shook her head fiercely. And I know now, mom, she said turning to her mother, why you said I'd understand why you carried me to term when it was my turn. I didn't have that with Raoul, but I'll have it with this child, with Emily's child. And when this child is born, my children and hers will have a mother. She turned back to Elizabeth. So I'm sorry, Elizabeth, she repeated her eyes, Misty. But there are some things in this universe that are more important, and I am finally going to give them, give the people I love, the time they deserve. Emily taught me that and I'm going to do it. There was silence for a long moment, and then Elizabeth Winton reached out and laid one gentle hand on Honor Alexander Harrington's knee. Of course you are, she said softly. Your Majesty, Prime Minister Granville said with unaccustomed formality some hours later. I don't think... Don't go there, Willie, Elizabeth said with an off-center smile. Honor and Hamish and their entire family, two legs and tree cats alike, had departed 20 minutes ago after a private dinner with the royal family. There weren't that many people Elizabeth Winton could invite over for dinner without its turning into a state occasion or a political horse trading session, and she deeply treasured the people with whom she could do that. She didn't need Honor's ability to taste other people's emotions, to know Grantville had simply been biding his time, though. Now she faced him squarely and he gave her one of those stubborn Alexander looks. Your Majesty, I understand what she's saying, and God knows I love her. For that matter, there's nobody in the Star Empire who has a better understanding of how much she's already given, how much she's already sacrificed. But we need her. We need her as the first space lord everyone would respect. Not even the most chauvinistic Havenite officer in the universe would dare to to disrespect her, And I can't even imagine a Manticoran officer with a testosterone level to argue with her. We have to make this military partnership work. And without her, First Willie. Elizabeth interrupted firmly. Nobody is truly irreplaceable. Do I agree with you that she would be the absolutely ideal First Space Lord? Of course I do. The only slot she'd be more valuable in would be First Lord. But I sort of think we'll be leaving Hamish in that one for a while. So, yes, I would really, really like to see First Space Lord Harrington working with First Lord Whitehaven and Secretary of War Thaisman, and CNO Longley or Tourville to make this work. You cannot imagine how much I would like to see that. But second, she's absolutely right about how much she's already given, how much her service to the Star Kingdom and the Star Empire's already cost her. I don't think I could even count the number of times she's almost been killed. And the list of people she cared about who have been killed would be enough to give me nightmares if I knew all the names on it. She's lost virtually all of her family on Sphinx. God only knows how many cousins she lost in the Beowulf strike. And now she's lost Emily. And I owe her. I owe her. Me, personally. Elizabeth Winton, not just Queen Elizabeth or Empress Elizabeth. That woman has put herself through hell for me over and over again, and so this time, Willie, this time, I have her back for a change. I don't really give a damn how badly we think we need her. You leave her be. That's a direct royal command, and you make sure everyone else leaves her be, because I will be the worst nightmare of anyone who doesn't. And, just to be sure we're perfectly clear about this, that means you, too, and I don't care if you are her brother-in-law. Do you read me on this? Grantville looked at her for a moment, but then he sighed. You're right, he said. I just, I just can't not want to see her where we need her so badly. That's because you're a prime minister, she told him with a crooked smile. Now, go home, both of you. She reached out to give Tree Master a quick ear rub where he sat on Grantville's shoulder and get a good night's rest, because tomorrow, while she and Hamish are out at Whitehaven packing for Grayson, you and I are going to be thinking about who we'll grab for First space lord, since we can't have her, got it? Got it, your majesty, he said ruefully, and gave the prince consort a slight bow. Good night, your highness, he said, and to you as well, your majesty. Good night, Willie." Elizabeth said affectionately and walked him to the door. It closed behind him, and Elizabeth tucked her arm through Justin's elbow and led him out onto one of King Michael's Tower's balconies. They settled on a chaise lounge, and she leaned back, resting her head on his chest with a sigh of deep content, as Ariel and Monroe draped themselves on perches. I've got to say, Beth, Justin said, I really didn't expect you to give up that easily, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, but I really, really didn't expect you to let her go without more of a fight. Really? She rolled her head, smiling at him in the moonlight. What makes you think I gave up on anything? His eyes narrowed and he frowned down at her. But you just said, I said she was right. And I said she deserves to be left in peace and I said I'd protect her from everyone else. Elizabeth's smile softened, and something like sorrow floated in her eyes. And I will. And it won't matter, not in the end. What do you mean? He asked. Why won't it matter? Because I'll need her, Elizabeth said almost inaudibly. I'll need her, and when I do, I'll get her back. Elizabeth, you're a queen, an empress, he said gently, hugging her tight. I know you care about her, but it's your job, your duty, to put the people you have to have in the places where you have to have them, whatever it costs them. Whatever it costs you. Of course it is. She looked up at him again. But I'm not the one who's going to make her come back make her put herself on the line again. He frowned in confusion, and Elizabeth reached up to touch the side of his face. I can, and I by God will protect her from everyone in the damned galaxy, she said fiercely. But there's one person I can't protect her from. Elizabeth shook her head, her dark eyes glistening with unshed tears. That's the hell of it, Justin. I can't protect her from herself. I'll need her, and she'll know it, and that will be all it takes, all in the world. Not because I try to force her into it, but because of who she is. She arched her neck, raising her head to kiss him, and then settled back once again, her eyes closed. Because she's Honor Harrington, the Empress of Manticore said softly. Because she's Honor Harrington.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And a large cage of time-traveling tigers to loose upon unsuspecting historical malefactors. Plus praise and gratitude for Eric Flint, Walt Boyes, Joy Ward Griffin Barber, and Jackie Britton Lopatin editor and authors of Grantville Gazette 9 please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars